Why did David break one of God's big ten? Why did this man after God's own heart break this law of God? He thought he was bulletproof. And in his leisure, he committed sin after sin after sin. And God looked at the life of this man after his own heart, and it displeased him. Learning how to repel the intimacy of sin. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Two names are synonymous with the Old Testament character King David, Goliath and Bathsheba. One represents courage and the other adultery. On today's broadcast, Pastor Chadwick examines the contrast of the king known as a man after God's own heart. So let's look at the story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, uh, as you look at David's life, there are two major names that are always associated with David. The first one is Goliath. The second one is Bathsheba. Uh, the first one signifies great courage. The second one signifies great cowardice. Well, let's look at the anatomy of adultery. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. That's what we'll look at today. And it's a fascinating study because God made it very clear in the Big Ten Commandments that to commit adultery was one of the greatest offenses against him. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And for those of you who say, wow, I didn't do that one, um, adultery really means any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. So in our culture that's highly charged sexually, that makes a lot of people have to gulp. You know, God intended the intimacy of sexuality in the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. So why did David break one of God's big ten? Why did this man after God's own heart break this law of God? Let me give you three reasons that are off the top in our text. Uh, first one was he was probably in a midlife crisis, if you will. Uh, he was around 45 to 50 years of age when the sin with Bathsheba occurred. Now, I don't know if he opened his robe up so that the hairs on his chest could be seen, and he started wearing gold chains and got a Ferrari chariot to buy and then ride around Jerusalem to make himself feel... I don't know if any of that went on, but he was around that perfect age, that perfect storm, when often adultery occurs in the life of men. Secondly, he was tremendously prosperous. He'd gone through 17 straight years of success. Victory after victory after victory against all of his enemies. In fact, interestingly, before the Israelites ever entered into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said, when you have a king, now notice he really didn't ever want them to have a king, but he said, when you do have a king and your king starts to try to amass large numbers of horses and large number of wives and large amounts of money, beware. And it's interesting, David didn't fall prey with large amounts of horses to have his dependence on military might or large amounts of money. Now, he always trusted God for that, but he did fall prey to the women. He amassed 10 wives, many concubines, harems, if you will. There was something in his heart that did not understand this whole idea of monogamy within marriage. And in his prosperity, he failed. I've learned through the years, my bet is you have too that success is a much greater temptation than failure. Success is a much greater temptation than failure because when you're successful, it usually leads to the third point of leisure and a sense of being bulletproof. And as we look at David in this text in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that he was 
very leisured, and he was also seemingly bulletproof, at least in his own eyes. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Notice that it's late in the afternoon and David is in bed instead of in battle. The text implies David as the king who was the general over the army should have been in battle at this time in his life, but he was rather in bed. He was in a leisure lifestyle. Late one afternoon, he gets up after a nap and was walking on the roof of the king's house. David's palace was terraced. It probably had the highest point in Jerusalem. So he went out on his terrace and he could look out over all of Jerusalem. Maybe he even started pumping his chest and going, man, look what I've done. Look at this city that I've been able to build. Wow, magnificent. And his eyes continued to wander that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Not just beautiful, she was very beautiful. And in the Hebrew, this implies she was one good-looking babe. She was a fine-looking woman. And David gazed at her, and here's what's so interesting. He kept on gazing. He didn't stop. Most all of our adultery or even thoughts of adultery are caused because we gaze. We don't stop after the first look. We continue to gaze, and we're responsible for the second one. My my mama used to say all the time, son, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. She was so right. You can't keep the temptations from coming. You cannot keep the lustful thoughts from entering your mind. They are everywhere, especially in our highly charged, sexualized society, but you can keep those thoughts from building a nest in your hair. You aren't responsible for the first look. You are responsible for the second look. David gazed. Coach Smith, my college basketball coach, said all the time, guys, you can't take a playoff. You can't take a playoff. That one play that you take off could cost you the game. The same is true with all of us. You can't take a day off. You can't take a gaze off. You must, you must guard your every single look. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, that word sent is very interesting. Uh, In the Hebrew, it implies the ability of one man to have power over another. It's a command. So David sends and inquires about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So one of the messengers who answers David's question, who is that babe, who is that beautiful woman, almost implies from the very beginning, David, don't look a second time. That's Bathsheba. Her mama is Eliam, almost implying that David knew the mother personally, but the husband is Uriah the Hittite. Now, why is that important? Last week, I talked to you about David's leadership and how he had 37 mighty men who followed him. It's 2 Samuel chapter 23. Look at the list of those mighty men. And what's absolutely fascinating is the last name on that list in 2 Samuel 23 is Uriah the Hittite. 
That means Uriah was one of David's closest companions. He was one of David's closest friends. And this person saying to David, don't you understand? You might even know Bathsheba's mother, Eliam, but you certainly know her husband, Uriah. He's one of your 37 mighty men. He's one of your friends. Back off. But David thought he was bulletproof. So David sent a second time messengers and took her. Now, now let's pause for a brief moment. Some people have suggested through the years that Bathsheba is equally culpable as David in this sin. But there's nothing in the biblical text to indict her. Nothing. The fact that she was bathing in the late afternoon was most common during that day. Later, you'll see that she was going through a ceremonial cleansing. It was probably after her time of month, and that was normal for Jewish women. Moreover, taking a bath in the afternoon was normal because the water was often caught by the barrels after a rain, and someone would take a bath not in the morning when the water was cool, but in the afternoon after a hot day when the water was warm. Let me ask you, do you prefer a really cold shower or a really warm shower? Obviously, the answer is we like warm showers. So did Bathsheba. So there's nothing to indict her in the biblical text that she was a co-conspirator with David, and he took her. It could be he took her against her will. I mean, how do you turn down the king? How do you say no to the most powerful man in the world? Bill Clinton was asked, why did you do that to Monica Lewinsky? His answer, because I could. Because I could. David thought he was bulletproof. He sent for her and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. One sin, one awkward moment, one given time can change your life. That happened with David. So how in the world does he begin to deal with this problem? He has committed adultery. Uh, he's now got a child involved. So here's what David does. Verse 6, so David sent, there's that word again, word to Joab, that's his commander on the military field, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going then King David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Do you see what David's doing? He is watergating the situation. It is a massive cover-up. He wants Uriah back from the battlefield. He commands Joab, his commander, to bring him back. And while he's there, he's trying to entice him to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. Then the child is born, and everybody thinks it's Uriah's. But Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps with the servants of David. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah starts lecturing the king. Are you kidding me? Joab and all your soldiers are out in a muddy field sleeping in tents, and you call me back so I can go sleep with my wife? 
Get real. Not going to happen. David's cover-up increases. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today, also and tomorrow. I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David says a couple few more days, he'll certainly be enticed to go back to this beautiful woman. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. (laughs) David tries to get him drunk to get him to go home to sleep with his wife. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The man has what's commonly called character. Well, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and died. David gives Uriah a letter to Joab, instructing him to put Joab on the front lines of the city of Rabbah, and as the fighting intensifies, have the people draw back where he's alone and he'll most certainly die. And Uriah carries the death warrant in his hand about himself to Joab. And of course, the fighting continued on the city. Joab did what David wanted. The troops were withdrawn, and Uriah was killed. Then a message was sent back in verse 21 where Joab says to David, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David hears this message, and in his heart, I'm sure he goes, cover up complete. No more questions asked. But when the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba, verse 26, heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband And when the morning was over, David sent, there's that word again, he sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He thought he was bulletproof. And in his leisure, he committed sin after sin after sin after sin. And God looked at the life of this man after his own heart And it displeased him. It displeased him. I mean, when you stop and think about all the sins that David committed here, there was more than just adultery. If you really look at the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, which are given to us by God to arrange social order that allows a society to work, if you look at these particular sins, look at all the ones David committed against the Ten Commandments. There was idolatry. He loved something more than God. Uh, There was lying, there was stealing, there was coveting, there was adultery, there was murder. In fact, if you look at the list of everything that David did here, the only ones you can't really put a finger on is honoring your mother and father, though I'm sure that Jesse and David's mom would have been greatly dishonored had they known their son done this one. So let's include that one. The only other ones might be graven images. Nothing like that seems to happen. And then also the Sabbath. But we don't know whether David committed this sin on the Sabbath, do we? So the truth is, eight of the ten David broke here. 
Now, in the New Testament, very quickly, one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments, one of the major purposes of the Ten Commandments, not just to be obeyed, it's just you can't obey them to earn your righteousness. They are in response to your righteousness. In other words, you obey the law of God not because you have to to earn salvation. It's because you want to to prove your salvation. But one of the major purposes of the Ten Commandments is to convict us of our sin, to show us how rotten our hearts are before God to drive us to salvation. So let's do this that we've done before. How many of you have ever loved something more than God? The rest of you, raise your hands, liar, liar, pants on fire. Come on now. All of us have. How many of you have ever broken the Sabbath and not honored it? How many of you have ever not honored your parents totally and completely? Uh, How many of you have ever lied, stolen? How many have ever coveted your neighbor's property? South Charlotte people, come on now. You are a raunchy bunch of godless reprobates. There's no question about that. But that's what the law is supposed to do. And and Jesus, in in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, takes it to the real place where it belongs. I've said to you so often through the years, the heart of the matter is what, folks? A matter of the heart. And what Jesus wants to do is change our hearts, not outward behavior. And he said, even if you look upon a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Okay, how about that one, guys? No, don't raise your hands. I don't want to know, okay? But the truth is, all of our hearts are bent towards selfishness and self-aggrandizement. And we'll see a little bit later why that is the case. So David is guilty, guilty, guilty. His behavior has displeased the heart of God because he's broken practically every one of the Ten Commandments. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio to talk about today's Davidism on leadership. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart? Tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry and and more importantly about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org and there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. 
Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Jen. I love being with you. You're a pleasure to be with. And folks, she is as pleasant to be around as her voice indicates every time we are together. David, you're too (laughs) kind. Well, I love this work we get to do together, just advancing the kingdom and unpacking these nuggets of wisdom together in these moments. And this morning, let's unpack this latest Davidism that you call Choose What's Best for the Team. Jen, it's a lesson I learned years ago from my college basketball coach, Dean Smith. He would emphasize this over and over again, that if you have to choose between what's best for the individual or what's best for the team, always choose the team. And this is a leadership principle that's good for those who are leading a family, those who are leading a sports team, those who are leading an organization. The team is what wins games, not the individuals. Mm. So you've got to always try to develop the team together for the ultimate best outcome. So in James, the third chapter, verse 13, you have this phrase, where there is envy and selfish ambition, there's every evil thing. Mm. So what brings about the destruction of a team and its ability to be cohesive and work together is usually envy, where Mm. people start envying one another, and also personal ambition that I want myself to succeed above the team. And if you are leading an organization and you're seeing people striving for their own personal ambition, you need to squelch it Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. You need to make decisions regarding what is best for the whole unit to succeed together. And I think leaders are regularly confronted with that issue. You're going to have young people, especially, who want to rise through the ranks and be successful and who might want everything to revolve around around them. And you've got to squelch that. You've got to nip it in the bud. You've got Mm -hmm. to keep it from happening because it will infect a team and it will destroy it. So always choose the team over someone's personal ambition. One of the things that comes to mind as you're saying this is one of the most powerful things I've experienced in my life is humility from a leader when they can acknowledge, you know what, I made a poor decision that just benefited me. I'm sorry, can we start over? And that is so powerful. And as believers, we get to hit that reset button as much as we want to. Oh, in grace, great. The grace is so great. <laughs> and, and, and I can remember one time in a church I used to pastor that I introduced a new vision, but I inaugurated it much too fast. Mm. I did not get the proper buy-in from people that I needed, and it kind of hurt people. It ouched them. And I had to stop and go back and regain the trust that people had for me. And I remember one Sunday, I just had to stand up and say to people, you know what? I think it's a great vision, but I didn't give you a chance to buy in enough. I made a huge mistake. Mm. I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stop and go back and explain it better to try to get the buy-in that I need. Mm -hmm. Jen, I think I probably earned a lot of brownie points in a lot of people's minds Mm -hmm. just by admitting that I had made a mistake because I knew what happened in the church was much more important than what happened to me. Yeah, no, I think trust is built with humility on the grounds of humility. And another great verse is Philippians 2, verses 2 through 4, where Paul talks about unity and how Mm -hmm. important unity is. You know, Jesus talks about that as well in John 17, that 
organizations and families that are together are much more uh, forceful in their ability to change the world. Mm -hmm. So the enemy, the devil's name, means the divider. He keeps trying to divide people. But the best way to have unity is by teaching that the team is more important than the individual. Mm -hmm. We respect you as individuals. We want you to succeed. But the way you'll succeed individually best is by the team succeeding. Coach Smith used to say all the time, all Americans are chosen from teams who win. Wow. And I think that's so important. So it's a great truth that we all need to learn that the team is more important than the individual. So good. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, thank you, Jen. And it's great talking with all of you today. If you'd like to receive these written Moments of Hope in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m., go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there from my heart to yours free of charge. that will arrive every morning to help give you a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. Also, check out David's weekly Hopecast, They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the leadership in our city.